talk is about understanding what loving-kindness is or understanding metta. The experience of unconditional love or the experience of loving-kindness I described earlier as the experience of what it would be like for a mother cow or a parent uh, to look at the newborn calf or to make that first contact visually with the uh, newborn. And we all know that (coughs) the labor uh, that it takes to give birth uh, can be very difficult, especially if you think of a calf. It's a very big being to give birth to. But to just imagine that even though in bringing a being, a newborn, into this world, there's a vast range of joy and sorrow that this newborn will face, whether it's a plant or in, and watching a bud of a flower open, that flower opens to rain, wind, sun. A newborn will face the vicissitudes of life. But in that newborn moment, there's this welling up of wishing well of a parent with a newborn. And this is what the Buddha described as the experience of loving kindness. It's a wishing well without attachment to a result. It's a wishing well even though the world is a world of joy and sorrow. And so it's called unconditional because it's being able to wish well no matter what the condition is. We can wish ourselves well even if we're sleepy in meditation. (laughs) We wish ourselves well even if the concentration isn't so good. We wish ourselves well even as we grow old. And can we wish others well even though they get angry? Can we wish others well, whatever, that we can't control (laughs) the world uh, the way we think it should be? So as we do the loving-kindness practice, uh, it can be difficult at times to remember what we're doing. We can easily get attached to the wish, uh, and it becomes clearer and clearer as the days unfold what is unconditional love and what is conditional. All the beings in this world who take birth face mortality, face impermanence. And facing mortality means we face a kind of poignant, aching beauty of the preciousness of the gift of life itself. The more we face mortality, the more we understand the preciousness of life. And when we talk about the experience of metta, is that connecting within ourselves initially with that preciousness of life itself. Steve describes that as connecting with our inner goodness. It's so important to realize what 
loving-kindness is and what it isn't. It's important not to forget that we're the mother cow and we're the, mo- and we're the calf. We're the mother cow and others are the newborn calf. There are times when we're the newborn calf and others are the mother cow. Can we receive loving kindness? Can we send it? As I've done this practice, I found that my understanding of the phrases keep deepening. And my understanding of what I'm wishing changes. Uh, And as that happens, the metta deepens, or the loving kindness deepens. For example, the first phrase, the classical first phrase, may you be safe and protected, or may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. Now over time, one starts to understand that inner harm means being safe and protected from greed, hatred, and delusion. It's being safe from the hindrances of doubt, sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, attachment. We start to get a sense as we do our own spiritual work what being safe in an inner way is. And we slowly start to understand that when we're not safe in an outer way, it's often because uh, it's a result of some other greed, hatred, or delusion. So we start to see, you know, what are we wishing in that phrase? And as you practice, your understanding of what it means to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion, that kind of freedom or liberation is so meaningful as one starts to grasp how important it is, how powerful it is in this world. The second phrase, may you be happy and peaceful of heart, it means a very similar thing. When the Buddha-to-be was a young prince, one of the four heavenly messengers that woke him up to search for his own liberation was seeing a renunciate. And how I first read the translation was that he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. This is what being happy and peaceful of mind or heart is. It's being really peaceful, free from struggle or conflict. The deeper our understanding of peace or liberation, the deeper our wish for someone. So if we look at this phrase a little more closely, we can see that often when we're not mindful, uh, there's a sense of dissatisfaction or that somehow we're not good enough and others aren't good enough. There's a lack of a feeling of sufficiency or contentment. And so wishing this for ourselves and others really means being able to understand what that sense of contentment would be for us. Even a glimpse of that in a moment is so nourishing uh, 
that we often put ourselves through retreats like this. You know, <laughs> on the second day of a retreat, you wonder, why would I put myself through this? You know, I'm always so happy when I come in the hall at this point in the evening and see you all here. <laughs> you know, my criteria for how you're doing is that you're here. You know, this is often the hardest place in the retreat, the second and third day. The third phrase, may you be strong and healthy of body. Certainly we go through all kinds of stuff around this phrase. I mean, how many times can we get attached to a result of that? We might be saying, may I be (laughs) healthy and strong of body, and we're having, you know, a wrenching pain in the mid-back. You know, what does that mean at that moment? You know, my sister has had ovarian cancer and has been slowly losing that, um, what's called battle, with cancer. Uh, And when I say that phrase for her, what does that mean? May you be strong and healthy of body. So we really have to look at that. Can we wish someone as much strength and health as possible, even if somebody's close to death? or just before they die. If there's enough understanding, we can. You know, that it means that they're as strong, as healthy as possible in that moment, given that things are as they are. And when there's an attachment to the result of that wish, it's very hard to do that phrase at times, and sometimes it's better to drop it it if it's not possible to have that understanding with that phrase at these times when the attachment's there. Given the vicissitudes of samsara, of life, uh, that fourth phrase, for me, uh, was such an astonishing thing to even learn to say. May I take care of myself happily while living on this earth. In my mind, I couldn't do that phrase for weeks without having my voice sound go up, and it would always turn into a question mark. (laughs) No matter how much I tried to say, you know, may I take care of myself happily while living in this world, it would go, may I take care of myself happily (laughs) while living in this world, in this world? (laughs) You know, there'd be that reaction like, forget it, I can't do that. Now, for you, that might not happen. It might happen on the first phrase. Uh, But usually, at some point in these phrases, it's important to remember that a practice, a spiritual practice, is a mirror for us. And it's a purification. And we'll get to see very clearly where the unconditional love is. When I would have an experience of attached love or um, anger around the metta practice, I would shift my phrases to, may I be happy just as I am. May I be peaceful with what's ever happening. Because it would help me bring in that balance of understanding, of equanimity, uh, so that I could bring acceptance to what's happening. 
And it's so interesting. Often it's around, uh, may you be happy if you change <laughs> in some way. You know? <laughs> or uh, may I be happy if you know, I change in some way. Or if this particular physical sensation goes away. You know, it's so interesting how quickly it can shift from unconditional to conditional. For those of you who don't know the terminology around near enemy and far enemy, the Buddha taught with each Brahma Vihara that there was a near enemy of the experience and a far enemy. Uh, So what that means is the near enemy of loving kindness is attached love or sentimentality, nostalgia, self-centered desire. And it means that the experience of self-centered love can seem so much like unconditional love, it masquerades as the experience and we get fooled. The far enemy is usually clearer. (laughs) The opposite of unconditional love is anger, irritation. But it can also be disappointment, fear, rage, all the aspects of aversion. So sometimes, instead of sitting here in unconditional love, bliss, all day, we can hear self-judgment, self-hatred, cruelty, the judge. There was a point where I was teaching in Burma this past year. I've been teaching for a month in January in, in Upper Burma. I've had the privilege of being there doing that with a Sayadaw there at an old 700-year-old monastery. The way the local people there serve us food and the way the cooks um, serve us, there's a, such a joyful poise in the way they give to us the genuine happiness that they receive in watching us eat. It can be overwhelming for us Westerners at times. And there was a yogi there this year who, toward the end of the retreat, said to me during a question and answer period that there are times when he (laughs) is eating and watching these people watching him eat. (laughs) You know, how unworthy he feels of such generosity. You know, especially if you see, uh, you know, some of the poor villagers giving. You know, there, there are all the range of people who give, wealthy, you know, middle, poor. Um, but it's especially poignant when you see someone who hasn't much giving in that way. And there's such joy in their faces. And yet, where is that block in us? Uh, to be able to receive that. And how much unworthiness comes up and shame. So I can answer a question like that in a very logical way, and I can say, you know, this is, they understand the joy of giving. You know, they understand that it's bringing them happiness. They also understand the nobility of doing this work. It's like they are brought up from childhood to realize 
that greed, hatred, and delusion are so much suffering, and that it's hard work to liberate oneself. Anything you can do to serve someone is a noble thing as well through this process. So they've, you know, they've been brought up knowing that that service isn't so personal as a very deep, liberating uh, action on their part, our part. It's like a, a reciprocity of metta that's mind-boggling. And if you can imagine at least 1,500 years in this particular spot, you know, for that many generations, and then little monks and little nuns and villagers all growing up together. And so if you receive something as a, a monk in a monastery, you probably knew as a child the person serving you. You know, it, it's hard for us to imagine that kind of interwoven web of generosity. What's so wonderful in that process is that we get a chance to really be mindful of the unworthiness. You know, to have that experience (laughs) come and go by itself. uh, And also to be mindful of the generosity and the joy in it. In terms of loving-kindness being a purification process, it's very powerful, medicine, like mindfulness. And if a moment of mindfulness is pure, or if a moment of loving-kindness is pure, uh, then purification will happen. And we tend to really like the pure times and think that's good practice. And we tend to not like the purification times and call them bad practice. And so if you think of you know, taking dirty cloth and washing it in water, dirt will come out, and that's what you want to have happen. That's partly what we're doing on this retreat, is you're taking uh, your own mind and heart and washing it with metta. Uh, and aversion will come out <laughs> at times. Attached love will come out. Loneliness will come out. I mean, that's what you want to have happen. When it, when it comes out, at this point in the retreat, we'll usually resist it. That's not what I came here for. You know, I came here for metta, not loneliness. You know, we don't have enough balance yet. Uh, mostly, you'll have it at times, but you'll fight it. And gradually, as the retreat goes on, you'll learn to bring less judgment, more acceptance, and then when you're needing to be mindful of what's coming out, you'll, you will. It takes a lot of patience, uh, but each day you'll find that you're, you're learning more how to do this. At the core of what usually blocks our bi- ability to receive or send loving kindness is the fear of how unlovable we are. You know, it's amazing how much we fear that experience. We somehow unconsciously believe it's true, uh, so we'll resist the experience itself. You know, at the core we think maybe we don't deserve love or that we want it so badly. Uh, In a mindfulness perspective, these are just thoughts. 
and we learn to work with them as just thoughts. In the metta practice, we also learn to break that barrier and really be able to work with that, that fear, the unworthiness or the fear of the unlovableness. Um, and we also start breaking the barrier and really receive love from ourselves. And we also learn how to send it. It's such a powerful thing to do. It's worth every bit of sleepiness, knee pain, you know, restlessness, doubt. Uh, two years ago in Burma, there were two young adults that came to the retreat, and one of the young adults was a real kind of city slicker, <laughs> New York City, really fast way of life, you know. Um, and his interviews sometimes were really interesting because I could measure how quiet he was by his relationship to the mosquitoes. Uh, so initially, <laughs> it was just like hearing the mosquitoes was so shocking to him. Because, you know, in New York City, you'd never hear a mosquito. <laughs> it just never gets that quiet. <laughs> you know, so he was so shocked that he was quiet enough to even hear them. Uh, and I could tell he was starting to quiet down just from him describing what they sounded like. There was another young adult uh, from Hawaii, from Honolulu, uh, that during the retreat, you know, usually late at night or early in the morning, they'll appear. Uh, and people put on bug repellent, but sometimes you'll hear them buzzing around your ear. And this particularly young, young adult found it very irritating. You know, all this aversion was coming up. They weren't even biting him, but it was just the sound. You know how you're anticipating them coming and stopping on you, and you know you have that conditioning to uh, resist. So he said that this was just toward the end of the retreat. He had the bug repellent on, and he was really wanting to work with us. It was a Vipassana retreat. And he said that he could hear the mosquito coming close, and then because of the bug repellent, it was backing off. And he could hear that the mosquito was getting angry and frustrated. <laughs> and, he, and he felt so much compassion. You know, it was amazing to watch him go from just not wanting to deal with this at all, to starting to work with it, to having compassion for the mosquito's frustration. <laughs> you know, that was, it's incredible. That's metta. You know, he felt connected in a way that is very hard for us human beings to connect. That's why we're laughing. You know, it's not easy to treat a mosquito equal to ourselves. You know, there's... <laughs> That irritation, it, I was just teaching a retreat with Steve in British Columbia, um, and because of allergies, I have to locate my bed in this place that beds aren't usually located. Uh, so there were some flying ants that seemed to like to crawl, you know, all over that I was working with. Um, <laughs> but then I figure that in the morning when I wake up, I'm kind of grumpy when I wake up. That's my type. Um, and I like to have a cup of tea without a lot of input <laughs> 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 in most any way. Uh, 
So I would go over to the uh, little place where I could make tea in this cottage that we were staying, and the big black ants had just uh, hatched out, and they were all over the place, uh, and there was a honey jar. And really, I just really like a cup of tea when I wake up. And I just don't want any problems (laughs) before I have it. And each morning, it was getting harder and harder for me to get the ants off this honey jar to the point where my hands were sticking. And then I was trying to get the ant off my hand and to try to not kill the ant before I could get the ant off. You know, I was practically needing a sedative <laughs> before I could get, you know, my caffeine <laughs> to get going in the morning. You know, and, and it was hard. <laughs> it was hard to treat those ants equal to me. You know, I really wanted that ease of just saying, you don't matter. My tea matters. You know, my mind state matters. You know, and it's, it, that's the challenge. You know, there's... Um, there was a time in my early years of doing metta where I was sitting my first long retreat of metta, and I went to see a, a Sayadaw, other than Sayadaw Upandita, for my second interview. And I was starting to tune into the metta, and I was describing it to him. And <laughs> I was describing the pleasant sensation of starting to feel the connection with this person. And he had this mischievous look in his eye, and he said, what would have happened at that moment if somebody came in and bopped you on the head? (laughs) You know, and he just kind of deflated me (laughs) a teeny bit. It was like, oh, I guess the metta wasn't that strong after all. You know, it's, 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 (laughs) that's an understatement. It wasn't that strong after all. In fact, it was just tender, very tender, just starting to develop. Stephen and I have um, been in the process of getting a piece of land on the big island of Hawaii for a meditation center. There's uh, two streams on this property going into the ocean. There's a native Hawaiian woman who is guardian of a native Hawaiian temple that's adjacent to our land that we've gotten close with over the year. And she's also guardian of, above our land, you know, mountainside, on the same stream, uh, she and over a hundred Hawaiian people have opened up the forest around the stream and are bringing back the taro. And taro is their uh, crop like potatoes would be to some of us uh, for thousands of (laughs) years, or or rice. It's like... uh, they consider taro to be their parent, their children of the taro. You know, and all that kind of ancient indigenous way of um, supporting themselves through food almost disappeared. So bringing the taro back is a very meaningful spiritual experience. You know, it's like when you walk into this place, it's like walking into an incredible cathedral. It's very, very moving to just have the 
luxury of going down into this place. They've restored. And sometimes, even though Stephen and I have been incredibly busy, we know how important it is to work in the tarot, to work in the stream with our friends there. So one time we went to visit, and this woman had us uh, clearing out the debris in the stream instead of weeding the tarot. Uh, And I had never done something like this before, and I'm actually so used to sitting that kind of heavy physical labor all day is quite um, a challenge for my body at this point. (laughs) And we were really, we were lifting these huge logs and digging in the mud, and um, it was a lot of work. (laughs) And then it started to dawn on me how it was this very close metaphor to this practice. You know, there's that stream of life and letting go of control. And whenever I would actually, after two or three hours, open a place up where the stream would start flowing again, it was just like my experience in this practice. You know, it was just like the, the unconditional love versus the conditional love or the anger. It's like you work with clearing out the debris. You know, and there's these hidden springs of water, you know, the loving kindness. It's there. It's not like it's not there. You know, it's really important to know that. Uh, And if it feels like you're feeling nothing, (laughs) think of it as a big log. (laughs) You know, it's okay. You know, the process of doing this just wears away, and the log will fall out, you know then the leaves will be pulled out, and the, the, the stream of unconditional love will be something you can tap into. It's universal. It takes a lot of patience. When we do touch into the purity of mindfulness, and remember that, I mean, the purity of metta, and remember that can only be a moment. It doesn't have to be lasting five minutes or ten minutes, but say it's just a few seconds. When we do, it will feel wonderful. Uh, And the understanding that comes at that time is that we're not separate. And we can trust in this understanding of the truth. You know, this is what we learn in the metta practice is that understanding of interconnectedness. You know, that we aren't different than that mosquito. We aren't different than the ant or the chipmunk or the bird or each other on a deep level. There's the diversity of all of us, of our stories, of our joys and sorrows on the surface. And that's important to recognize and not to reject. There's this wonderful diversity of us all. And also there's this deep um, universalness of us all. So the near enemy of unconditional love. When I was doing this practice, so much of what I saw as the near enemy was wanting love. You know, it was like I I would be doing the benefactor and instead of sending it, I was just hoping to be getting something. (laughs) And this is okay. It's like if you see that, you don't have to judge it. 
You know, so it's not quite unconditional. Keep going. You know, there's nothing wrong. It's just colored by wanting. You know, there is that sense of sometimes it becoming overly sentimental or nostalgic. Or maybe we come up with the neediness or the loneliness on a deep level. And sometimes we really do feel like we'll die without this kind of love. And it becomes just so far from the unconditional. Sometimes there's erotic love or sensual love. There was a night where I was teaching in Honolulu, and Steve and I drive home every night from the residential retreats. I usually drive home around 10.30. for three nights in a row, as I was driving out, I turned on the radio, and there was a song playing. Uh, it seemed like these might have been the only words in the song. <laughs> but it, it was kind of like this guy was screaming, might as well face it, you're addicted to love. <laughs> and it's a, it's a catchy tune. <laughs> it's a catchy phrase. But it was so, you know, three nights in a row, I thought, well, is there some kind of message in this? Might as well face it, you're addicted to love. Um, We are as humans. You know, that wanting versus wishing well. Uh, This is a poem from a book called The Gift, poems by Javiz, the great Sufi master. And it's called My Eyes So Soft. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you, as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. You know, that yearning that we all have is for something deeper than conditional love. And we get fooled, you know, we get fooled by that love that appears that's wanting or needing, and we think that's love. But it's not this unconditional love that we really yearn for. And what the Buddha taught is that we can actually not only learn to relate to ourselves like that, you know, that we can develop this, this that we want so much, but that we also can wish it for others, that we can give that unconditional love for others. You know, it's such good news. <laughs> There's an image that I like, that I heard Steve give once in a guided meditation. Uh, And if you have an empty glass and you fill it with water, at some point the water's going to start flowing out. You know, it's inevitable. Yeah? And if you treat yourself, even if you relate it to your body and mind, heart, your feeling essence as an empty glass. And the metta practice for yourself, it's like you're filling yourself up with well-wishing. You know, what's going to happen at some point? You know, it will naturally flow out. Don't worry if that's not (laughs) happening right now in the practice. Uh, But it is inevitable. 
And I love that the Buddha taught to start with yourself because it's so clear that it has to move in that direction. It's like it will naturally spill over. There won't be anywhere for it to go but out. So for some people, there'll be times in the loving-kindness practice over, over the years of our spiritual practice where there'll just be a draw deep in to wish it for oneself. You know, and it's almost like those are just times in practice that one has to follow that. There are other times when that won't be happening at all. You'll, you'll collect, connect it with yourself a bit, and there'll be an ease with moving on. Uh, and this is part of the journey, is just learning where one is and trusting that. Wherever we are, it's okay. Where the practice of metta intersects the mindfulness practice is when the purification is happening. And so the instruction is to keep going with the loving-kindness as much as we can wherever we are. Uh, But if it happens that, say, loneliness comes up and it just (laughs) is so intense that we can't repress it and keep going with the loving-kindness where we are, still the instruction is to then go where it's easy. So if you're wherever you are, you'd shift to, if you're with dear friend, you'd shift with benefactor or yourself. At a certain point, though, you've already, I'm sure, (laughs) discovered this, maybe it's just with sleepiness and a reaction to it. Say you're sleepy and you're not accepting it and you're trying to do metta for someone or yourself, it's impossible to feel metta and aversion at the same time. And so you'll be trying to keep sending it to the benefactor, dear friend, or oneself, and yet, you know, one's going, (laughs) and it's like, it's okay, I don't mind if I'm sleeping for the third sitting in a row, you know. (laughs) Uh, But really, one is minding, you know, one isn't able to do the metta practice, and what do you do? Well, what's interesting is that one tries to shift to another being or oneself. You might even start sending a little metta to the sleepiness. But then mindfulness of sleepiness is what one does. We shift to the Vipassana practice. Just like if it was loneliness and it was moving in and there was no way of moving away from it, you'd shift to mindfulness of loneliness. Uh, But I recommend that if you shift to mindfulness practice, that you anchor. You know, anchor with the movement of the breath, so that you get some perspective of shifting practices. Sometimes if you just shift without, you know, really anchoring, we forget how to be mindful. You know, it's, it's interesting. You can do 10 years of mindfulness practice and be so immersed in doing the metta that we forget how to, how to shift. Uh, it's like we, re- we forget what that balance of mindfulness feels like, of just noticing the moment-to-moment experience. So anchor for a while but with the breath, and then, you know, you might make a soft mental note. Oh, sleepiness, sleepiness, or loneliness, or, or resistance. Uh, and try to bring that relationship of kindness, that attitude in the mind of acceptance to the experience 
that's the purification. You're bringing wisdom to your experience. The metta will be purified. Metta is love with understanding. So you bring the wisdom into the practice and the practices come together. So please don't think that you can do this loving-kindness practice without developing understanding. You can't break the barriers without bringing the mindfulness in at times, and that will bring wisdom into the practice. As the retreat unfolds in terms of wisdom, we start to see that when someone is a pleasant type, you know, we tend to have an easier time often wishing them well, but there can be attachment so easily developed, that near enemy, you know, where we hold on to the person, not realizing that the pleasantness is happening inside ourselves, and we're getting attached to something actually happening inside of us. And then as the practice unfolds, we start to see that if there's someone who's being unpleasant for us, that the far enemy arises, the anger or the fear, the resistance. And we get fooled and we think that that's actually happening outside of us. We push that person away. They're in the difficult category or they're the mosquito type. They're the difficult being. Uh, But we forget that actually with understanding, we know that the unpleasant feeling is a mental feeling. It's happening inside consciousness itself. Uh, Those two kinds of practices, understanding with deep mindfulness, that unpleasant, unpleasant feeling, and bringing that understanding into the metta helps us break the barrier between ourselves and others. Usually, as the practice unfolds, there'll be more acceptance of ourselves with, when we're unpleasant. There's more acceptance of others when there's the unpleasantness. And there's less attachment to the pleasant in others and ourselves. This practice is extremely balancing. And the more we know how to bring the mindfulness practice into this practice, also the more balancing it is. Ultimately, if you're the type that tends to focus more outside of yourself uh, and get involved with people and needing to work, you know, take care of them, it's called the codependent type. (laughs) This practice is really helpful because one will start to really value oneself and be able to have enough metta for oneself to also take care of oneself happily while living in this world. If one's the type who is more narcissistic and self-centered, this practice will wake one up as well. It wakes us all up. It wakes up all types. And one will start to see, wow, (laughs) there's other beings. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, benefactor, dear friend, neutral, difficult, all the beings. I mean, this is, this is a practice that you could spend weeks sending metta to all beings in the North. It's just a vast practice. It's wonderful. 
as I was saying this morning, we can't strengthen metta with a battering ram. You know, you can't force this practice. Uh, And if you find that it's getting very mechanical, there were times when I was doing this practice and I would feel like, as I was saying the phrases, I had the driest crackers in my mouth and that I was just going to become a cracker, you know, and just dry up (laughs) into some salty being. Uh, It just can get really dry. And I wouldn't understand, how can it get this dry? Uh, But I started to see that in the low-energy times, when I would say, may you be happy, I might as well be saying, may you be sneezing. (laughs) You know, there's no understanding there, right? I mean, how many times have you been doing that today where it's like, may you be safe and protected? It doesn't mean a thing. You know, there's no energy there. There's no meaning in it. You know, so when you're able to say, may you be safe and protected, and there's some energy, uh, you'll feel like you're doing it. Somewhat. And then a deeper immersion of concentration and energy is when you can mean it. There's the juice. You actually understand what you're saying. You mean it. And when you can connect it, the third part is connecting it with yourself or someone. And when you make that connection, you've hit the water. You know, there's the juice. Uh, you'll notice the difference between those times and the dry times. It still might not be that you're sitting there having the most peak experience you've ever had in your life. It could be very quiet, but you feel that connection. Uh, At this point in the retreat, if this happens once a day, that's great. You know, the lower your expectation, Just try to keep the phrases going as much as you can. If you hit the wall, don't use a battering ram. Just, you know, just do a little mindfulness practice for a while and then start in again. So we keep that balance of not underestimating the power of saying the phrases even when we're tired and there's not a lot of meaning. Not giving up. But also if you hit the wall, back off a little and then start in again. You know, this is a form of kindness and loving kindness for ourselves, understanding how to keep going with enough gentleness. Mm. Metta is a blessing. It's ultimately being able to give yourself a blessing and give others a blessing. When there's understanding happening, we understand that it's metta that gives the blessing. You know, it's loving kindness that wishes well. It's not that I am wishing well. It's that you've tuned into that deep place of loving kindness. So it's really the blessing that gives the blessing. And there's nothing like it. You know, we all yearn for it. It is the water of life. Loving kindness. It is that stream that's running unimpeded. Ultimately, there's no giver and no receiver. 
when we hit that place in practice, we don't need to keep the phrases going. It's like we don't need the words. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.